Season two of Love and Context podcast welcomes you. Get ready for engaging unscripted conversations with your hosts, Ben and Spencer. Our mission remains unchanged to explore the Bible through the powerful lens of love. In this new season, we'll embark on a journey together, unearthing fresh insights and gaining deeper understanding of how we can love God and live out our faith in practical ways. So let's dive into this season of Love and Context, where love and the context of the Bible intersect to transform our lives. Welcome to the Love and Context podcast. Something has happened that nobody thought would happen. Yeah. We, we got Pastor Nick's wife, Jamie, to come on and join us, and she is regretting every single moment of it. <laughs> She's about ready to hand that 500 bucks back. Yeah, 500 <laughs> bucks. I wish. Yeah. She's I'm like, holding you to that now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I'm Ben. I'm not Ben. Yeah, that's Spencer, because he apparently doesn't want to say his name. And we're joined by uh, Pastor Nick's wife, Jamie. And actually, you know what the interesting thing is? Nick has been on the podcast multiple times, but he's not been on any of the videos. So you're actually the first one in the Mitchell family on the video. Oh, I feel honored. Yeah, you should feel honored. Because we have talked about in the past that this is actually our fourth camera, because the other three broke, because we kept filming our faces. <laughs> yeah. So we're just glad that you're here with us today. Yeah. Thank you. We invited you here because, as you know, we're continuing on in the women in, in the Bible and ministry. You are the other half of the pastoral team of Pastor Nick. I, I have long maintained that pastors' wives are pastors because you're expected to step into pastoral role activity. I'm, I'm sure you've become aware of that. Mm-hmm. We figured it's probably not a great idea for a couple of middle-aged guys to talk about, you know, the female perspective. Mm-hmm. We are glad that you're going to tap us into the correct way to talk about that. Yeah. Let's see here. So have you, you grew up in the church, right? Yep. Assembly or? Not always, but. Not always? I mean, I've been in assembly for the yeah. past. Yeah. So. So for, many years. For about so many years. Whenever you met that, that handsome strapping oh, young man. with the, uh, Before him even. Ooh. Yeah. So Decades. Decades. So was it so Pentecostal, but it was always Pentecostal or was, okay, I was just curious. We were, we were having that conversation because the last week Dominique comes from CMA background, but her, her parents were actually, well, her dad was an atheist and her mom was Presbyterian, Presbyterian. Presbyterian and Spencer comes from a free Methodist. I come from a Southern Baptist. And so we got a lot of different perspectives on this podcast. Captain Shelby, Salvation Army. Yeah. If you've ever seen my mom worship, you know that I come from Pentecostal charismatic church. <laughs> Listen, here's the thing. Your mom is, let's just, I'm going to use the word exuberant in worship. And I love every minute of it as long as I don't have to stand next to her. And that's mostly because she she's very into it and she and it's very authentic for her. Like if I was moving like that, it would probably not be authentic. It would definitely be a, an act that I'm putting on, but it's very authentic to her. Mm-hmm. While we're doing music, I was like, it's actually very encouraging. I love it when people are into it. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So- your mom reminds me of this lady that I know in Washington where like she would stand in the back of church during worship and she would just be all into it. But she would just randomly throughout songs just be like, hallelujah. Like, <laughs> she, could, she could project her voice like she could get over the top of the sound system. Oh, gosh. And so it was like she'd be in the back of the church and there'd be times where you're doing like a quiet, calm, introspective. <laughs> that's just, so jarring oh. yeah but it was it was one of those things where i was like she is just into it yeah, yeah. like reminds me of your mom she is yeah, here so for it yeah. yeah just here for it so yeah awesome. my mom has definitely accidentally smacked kids oh no as they go by you know because our row always just seems <laughs> yeah. to have i was like, just saying you're gonna need, need to clarify that a little bit <laughs> okay. she's yeah, but they're running, she's just every time there's kids aisle. come by she's like smack <laughs> 
But yeah. her eyes are closed. Her right. eyes are flinging about, and and they get they get whacked sometimes. Well, and and one of the things that I like about our church is that one of the things that appeals to me, especially with a five year old and a three year old, is uh, we we let kids be kids. Mm-hmm. And so, like even during worship, like kids are moving around a little bit because yeah. kid that's what kids do. There's nothing quite as amusing to me as James dancing in the back with his mom oh, yeah. during worship. You know, uh-huh. he is into it. Yeah. So cute. Yeah, so cute. he is into it. Leland, on the other hand, wants to be held and cuddled. And uh, just bounced up and down during worship. So I'm pretty sure that at some point Tara's going to be able to just like bicep curl like 100 pounds. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's it's pretty impressive, like uh-huh. holding the kid and dancing at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so really quick here, you are quite the artist. Thank you. You did a piece for, for wearable arts, which is where you make your piece from all original material. And then you make like a costume of sorts. And uh, Pastor Clint, who's been on here, you had his wife as your model. Yeah. And it was quite the piece. Yeah. Yeah. What exactly was it? Dryer ducting uh-huh. and reflective insulation sheets. Yeah. Was the majority of it. And then a bunch of other random little bits that put it all together. But it was kind of serpent-esque. I was talking to her on Sunday and she said that she's like, she did it a couple of times and she was a little worried. Some old ladies like, <gasps> like when yeah. she did it. And I was like, that's pretty great. Yeah, it's a little bit terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But I saw pictures and videos, and it was fantastic. One of the pieces that I enjoy that you, you've you done before you do those scratch art pieces, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what you're scratching. It's like black canvas with like color underneath. It's white clay board covered in black ink. See, this is why you asked the artist, not the musician. <laughs> Scratched away, and then it's white underneath. Yeah. Just deciding whether to like explain it or be insulted right now. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> what you have to do is you got to get the smug artist and be like, well, it's actually, you know, you know what I mean? Like, change the tone of my voice. Change the tone of your voice yeah. to condescending. Mm-hmm. That is, that's actually my default setting. I have to change it to like sympathetic and kind. Mm-hmm. I've actually been a huge fan of your art and my wife is often like, she's like, oh, Jamie does such cool things. I'm going to copy your idea. And then I'm like, that looks nothing like what Jamie did. So I'm not sure how you copied it, but artists are weird. So I just trust her. Well. Uh, Tara has her own amazing <laughs> technique in well, and of itself. Your your kids are really funny because your son is so much like Nick. Your daughter is really good at making art too, like her whole costume thing. Mm-hmm. Like she does like full. It's almost like a mascot yeah. for like a college team. I remember on my birthday, she brought over the fox head, and my son laughed so hard uh-huh. for so long. And then for the next few days, he was like, can the girl come over with the fox head? <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, she mold- probably appreciates being called that more than her own name. Yeah, probably. Right. Probably. The girl with the fox head. Well, yeah. James has an interesting way of like just talking about things in general. So I, I introduced him to Weird Al the other day. So I played him the song Smells Like Nirvana, which is the parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. Then the next day he says, Dad, can we listen to the stinky song? Mm. <laughs> stinky song like what did i play him it's like the stinky song i was like oh do you mean so he's like yeah so i started playing i started jumping around and i was like well that's that's a way to talk about it but whatever (laughs) i like it all right so back to the bible (sighs) got to stop talking about ourselves this isn't a personal podcast this is a love and context this is the sixth week of our of our mini series uh, so we started off in Genesis 1 talking about what is the foundational truth about how God sets up men and women together to be a co-partnership that we are supposed to together rule the world, subdue the world, be fruitful, to multiply, to forward the kingdom of God everywhere uh, from Eden. 
we touched on some things that we talked about last season in the Torah series yep. and like how God was constantly elevating women throughout the scriptures. And then we had, uh, that was where we had Laura Kroc on. And then we continued on. We talked about how there's these women of promise. So it's not just Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It actually matters who they partnered with mm-hmm. because Abraham has a lot of kids outside of Sarah, but only one carries the promise. And, and it's not about just one, it's actually about both. And we have, there's a lot of like interesting things going on in the text there. Then we talked about women in, in leadership in the Old Testament. So we talked about Miriam, we talked about Huldah, we talked about Esther, we talked about, who am I forgetting? Deborah. Mm-hmm. Deborah. Like, my mom's name is Deborah, so I'm probably <laughs> going to hear about that. How could you forget that name? Well, it's easy, because I don't have it in my notes in front of me. That's why. And just like how, how God actually had been using women in ministry and, and in, in leadership. And then we talked about the line of Jesus and then like how there are these awkward, weird stories yeah. where they focus on like these weird stories about women that God is elevating. Yeah. These people who are on the outside are being welcomed in. And then last week with Dominique, we talked about how did Jesus actually interact with women throughout his ministry, mm-hmm. specifically that he had disciples that were women and he had interactions with women where he was always bringing grace to a very tense situation. And about always about bringing the outsider in. So that brings us to today. Where we're actually talking about post-Jesus. So we're talking about the rest of the Bible, uh, the rest of the New Testament, everything that happens after Jesus ascends into heaven. So with that being said, there's actually a lot of women listed. And I, as I went through and went started listing them, I was like, oh, good golly, this is a long list. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to talk about this in the two and a half hours it takes to record this. Just kidding. <laughs> Once again, I always remind people that the writers of the New Testament are all Jews. They're all going to come from a Jewish background. The one you might be able to argue is whether or not Luke is a Jew, but he's definitely a proselyte. So he's in the Jewish culture. So all throughout these books are these people who are part of a patriarchal culture, part of a patriarchal regime. Rome is very going to be a very patriarchal society as well. And yet these writers continually are talking about women serving as deacons, leaders, elders, pastors, missionaries, everything that you can consider in the New Testament, and they're naming them, which is a big deal. Yes. The fact that their names are even showing up at all. Mm-hmm. That's a trend that we want to try to spot in the Bible, is like when culturally it's not appropriate to be naming somebody, the fact that they're being named is a big deal. Yeah, and you also need to talk Roman culture a little bit, mm-hmm. and that's because it's not just Jewish culture. Like if you want women in Roman culture weren't valued, mm-hmm. weren't held of value either. Things like street prostitution and stuff like that was actually a common state in a lot of Roman mm-hmm. towns. And so just uh, a lot of Roman towns, how women could make money was just through acts of prostitution, stuff like that. I keep that in mind, too, like that they're naming these women and they're not just the context of a Jewish culture, but in the context of a Roman culture, which didn't hold women in high esteem. And pretty much the only women you're going to have in high esteem are going to be ones who are fairly wealthy or connected yeah. to powerful men. Yeah. So when they're being talked about in these in these texts, it's a really big deal. We talked about Joanna last week yep. and like that she was married to the guy who was in charge of Herod Antipas's money. Mm-hmm. So pretty important person. Because yeah. do you know much about Herod Antipas? Like imagine Jeff Bezos on steroids. Like he's got money everywhere. He makes the, the billionaires of today look like they had nothing. Like they had so much money because they controlled a lot of the the spice trade and, and movement of things going around. So they were just they were just flooded with money. Uh, the kind of things that the Herods built, like palaces and stuff, they're archaeological marvels. 
just astounding cost. Most of the most of the work for like the stonemasons and stuff that would have happened during that time would have been Herod actually putting them to work doing some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it would have been the best paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was obscenely wealthy. Which, I mean, of course, then that's where you run into this whole idea that they kind of just felt like they could do whatever they want as long as they didn't make Rome angry because Rome may not be, may not be wealthy, but they are strong. Mm-hmm. So early on in the, in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus ascends. And so then we come back. It says that the, see the apostles with the believers, the disciples, right? So the believers, like disciples after Jesus ascend are called the believers. Mm-hmm. That's typically the language changes. They no longer call them as disciples. They start using the word disciple to really illustrate when they're talking about the twelve. It's just a language shift, which makes sense because now now the people who are disciples are people who believe that Christ has risen from the dead. So it actually says in Acts, it says, uh, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, which is the delicious hill, by the way. I love olives. Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. There, there present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with, with his brothers. So we see this entire community that's unified together in prayer, men and women alike. Now, why does Luke note this? Why is it important that he notes that the women are there? Because if he doesn't, you're not going to assume that they're there because it's not a textual normality. Like you don't, unless you mention it, like the people aren't going to really care about the women at all. Yet Luke says, Hey, it's really important that, you know, Mary was there. The female disciples were there and they were all together. Yes. The 12 were there. Well, 11 because Judas killed himself, but the 11 were there, but there were other people there with them as well. Yeah. And so they're not being assumptive on the other, on the other side of those things. Yeah. And that's, huge yeah like and it's something we can actually learn from is that we want to be careful with those assumptions yeah right of what we think people know or what they might imply out of some of conversation like we've even had that conversation about our podcast here Mm -hmm. like we try to be careful what we say we want to have an unscripted conversation but at the same time we're trying to be careful what we say because we don't want people to assume the wrong thing yeah yeah generally speaking i hope people have grace with us Mm -hmm. you know i have heard from people that we make a lot of assumptions about the heat of the desert. Yeah. You know, because the desert isn't always really hot. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's also sometimes very, it's really, really hot. Well, sometimes it's really, really cold, like in the nighttime. Yeah. 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 Thank you for bringing it back, Red. You're welcome. We got you. Can you show me your shirt? It's great. Well, you may not be, you may, you may not be able to see it, but it's the shirt that says the desert is really hot. Yeah. It is available on our store. So if you want one, you can get one. Yeah, we have a store. Yeah, we sold one hat. <laughs> Honestly, what we need is we need to have somebody who actually likes designing things to do things in the store because we are not designers. Is this a hint? No. Oh. It is an invitation. If if you want to, I would love for you to design That's things for us. Something I know how to do. Yeah. If you would like to, we would love it. Okay, cool. Yeah. You are you are hundred percent more than welcome. <laughs> in the book of Acts, Luke is going to bring up women working working a whole lot of times. It's not a throwaway line. Like we've talked about context is really important. I think the temptation is to assume things about the text. Mm-hmm. And anytime we assume, I think we need to be really careful to examine those assumptions. Yes. Jamie, you guys have been married how long? You and Nick? For 17 years. Have you ever found in marriage that you guys are like having like you're just coexisting in your life 
and like something happens and you make an assumption about what the other person's thinking. I never do that. You never do that. No. You've never done that. All right. Well, so then our next episode is about lying. And so we're actually going to have, <laughs> have you come back. And, I literally have to I do mean, that all the time because Nick is not a talker. Oh, yeah. That's true. Well, Nick's not a talker and he's all over the place. Yeah. Like he's, you know, like. So the I've done a few projects with that. We're yeah. like, all right, man, here we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the the thing about like even when you when you know somebody really well, like you assume that something is going on, and so like what I have happened with me a lot of times when people don't know me is I have an angry thinking face. Like when I'm thinking about something, my face looks angry. It's just like, and I'm like literally I'm just relaxing and like processing things in my brain, and they're like, hey, I see that you're upset, and I'm like, <laughs> who? <laughs> like not me. So a lot of times I think we have to examine our assumptions. In fact, there's a book called having better conversations. It's about management, but it says you actually need to assume the best or like assume a better story yeah. about people. It's a really good book. By the it's way. a really good book. And so like, until I am empirically proven different, I prefer to assume the best possible scenario in every story. And when I have assumptions, I think that is, especially when it comes to the Bible, I think it's really important that we actually go and we delve into those assumptions rather than just proceeding with what we think it means. And that's also why it's really important to have, like, the context of the entire Bible. In conversations with people on this topic of women in ministry, it's really interesting that a lot of times they will make the statement, they say, we need to engage the whole Word of God, and then they focus in on four verses, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. But they focus in on four verses. And I was like, now, the last time I checked, there's 66 books in the Bible. Last time I checked. So I tried to sneak one in. I feel like quoting four verses— for the entire breadth of like 66 books might not be using everything available to actually interpret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You got to hold the two. You got to hold the two in contrast. Like yeah. there's one pastor I know he, he just puts it this way. He's like, there's way more in the Bible that talks for women in ministry than mm-hmm. there is against it. Yeah. And so he's like, we're just going to weigh out the two. He's like, there's way more on that side. Yeah. So we have to examine that conversation and not just hold to the, hold to the um women can't do it yeah i think it's really common that especially in the american church that that's an important specification (laughs) that we don't if there's a mentioning of a woman in the word it's not always something that we think about how important that is that they've been mentioned it's just oh there's a name and it's a female name okay well we'll just continue on reading because in our culture we don't necessarily understand how important that mm-hmm. is to, mm-hmm. to see that and also just things that don't make sense to us culturally we mm-hmm. just pass over yeah because we don't know we just don't know and instead of always digging deeper and understanding why that's there yeah but, you know like sentences and phrases and names and all mm-hmm. this stuff that we're like well i don't know why this is here this is just a lot of words <laughs> well yeah and we've we've talked about like because i've been over at your house and we've done care group together and we've talked about how like a lot of times we read something and we're like oh this is what it means and then like you're like oh wait actually that coordinates with another story in the bible that's probably not an accident you know actually speaking of which there is uh the next person we're talking about is sapphira there there is two people in the bible ananias and sapphira that come up in the book of acts the story in the book of acts for those of you who haven't read it by the way highly recommend 10 out of 10 mm-hmm. uh would recommend the believers are, they're coming and they're, they're selling their things so that everybody who's there is able to eat, live, continue the ministry. Because if you remember at Pentecost, everybody's come from all over Israel to come and worship yeah. for Shavuot. 
That's what they've come for. They've come for the Day of Atonement. They come for Shavuot. Then the, at Pentecost, which is also called Shavuot, the spirit is poured out and 3,000 people are added to their number that day. Well, 3,000 people don't necessarily live in Jerusalem, but they're staying because God did something. Mm-hmm. They're not going back to their houses because something transformative has happened, which, by the way, is kind of how God works. Yep. God does something and then you're like, I'm not leaving this place <laughs> until, I, until I absorb every bit of goodness that God has for me. So naturally, now you have a bunch of people who are there who are... They're going to need housing. They're going to need food. And then not to mention that in Jerusalem in general, there's going to be poor and people who are hungry. Now with this burden of the Holy Spirit on you, you're going to want to take care of them. So believers who have means are selling their things and bringing them and putting at the apostles' feet. Yeah, They're not required to do that. They don't have to do that. But God has opened this new temple called the people of God. The kingdom of priests are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And like that, they're now bringing their sacrifices to move the kingdom forward. So then you have these people who are named Ananias and Sapphira, and they sell a piece of property. Totally allowed to do. And they come and bring money, and they put it at the disciples' feet. Totally good. But they decide to keep some money from themselves, but present themselves like they're giving everything. Mm -hmm. Not cool. That's not cool, because God is doing something very specific about generosity in people's hearts. Nobody said they had to give up their money. Nobody said they had to give up their stuff. And God looks at that and he's like, yeah, we're not doing that. Well, this story isn't, I've heard the story miscued a few different ways, yeah. but one way that I've heard it miscued is like, oh, well, they didn't give their all. I was like, no, it's actually that they weren't honest Yeah, about it. It's like, if they would have, I mean, like, would the story have been different? This is a little speculating, but would the story have been different if they came into the temple and said, hey, we sold our property, here's half? I believe so. Now, the reason I believe so, and to your point where we were talking about, like, the Bible telling other stories, in Leviticus 10, there's another story about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. Mm-hmm. And it says that they are consumed by strange, they offer strange fire and they're consumed. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go back to our Torah series, and I'll link that episode in the in the show notes, what we talked about is that there's actually this interesting thing where uh, Nadab and Abihu are are frustrated with the fact that they're not being welcomed into the presence of God in into the role that is actually Aaron's and Aaron is being brought into the temple of God. God's opening his new temple. They get frustrated and they go and take their censers and they try to offer smoke to be something that they're not. And God, it doesn't say that God's angry. It just, he takes them out and they're gone. Now we assume that when God takes somebody from this earth, that he's angry. But if we have such a finite view of the world, that's how we're going to run into that. But if eternity is a legitimate thing, if God says that there is no beginning, there is no end, there's only existence with me, then at some point he will look down and be like, you know, it's probably better for you if I just bring you home. Mm-hmm. I have kids and there is a time, and I, we talked about this on the same episodes, where I have to sit, they hit the I'm done button. You familiar with that button? Yeah. Yours are a little older now, but you probably still I'm have better. an I'm done button. Yeah. So there, there comes a point, like when you're at dinner or whatever and like the kid just like you're they're doing okay they're doing okay and then they they start screaming and you're like listen we need to calm down and and it's not doing i said so what happens at that point pick them up you walk out of the building you take them home and you put them to bed i'm not angry at my child but i am going to remove them from that situation and there's nothing they can do at that point in order for me to leave them there because we hit the I'm done and they've, they've actually compromised something. Now, that is a human example, but I think when we, when we look at the way that God interacts with the world, we shouldn't assume that he's mad every time. Yeah. But more that God is having grace and he says, listen, it's not going to be good for you if you stay here. It's time to come home. Yeah. And uh, so what we see here is Ananias and Sapphira. What I w- will note is that both of them are given the opportunity 
here, not one or the other. She's not held accountable for his statements. She's held accountable for what she says. Mm-hmm. I just think there's a really beautiful dichotomy in that, in that you're not being held to, uh, you're not being judged by somebody else's standard. Mm-hmm. So that's a big deal, I think. Well, there's actually a tie back to Garden of Eden there too. Sure. With, with Adam and Eve. Yeah. Because when the Lord approached Adam and Eve, he approaches Adam and Adam's like, well, no, it was my wife. Then he approaches Eve. Uh-huh. And so he actually gives equal conversation. And then she blames the snake. So that she, yeah. he goes and talks to the snake. You know, this whole idea of like man and woman together, because we've talked about the Etzer Connecto, the force that opposes, right? That that woman to man is the Etzer Connecto. In other words, you're, which is, by the way, a word in Hebrew that's used to describe God most of the time. So that's a pretty good thing to be compared to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the in the eating of the apple, or not apple, but fruit, because it's not specific about apple. It was a fig because they used fig leaves. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you and you and your perspective on that. You know what? It's fine. It's a fig. Like we'll call it a fig. But it says that she ate, then he ate, then their eyes were opened to. to then their eyes were opened. It wasn't. She ate and her eyes were opened. He ate and his eyes were opened. It was when they made a conscious decision together. And I've long said that when a couple together makes a statement, when one is like, hey, I'm going to give up on X, Y, or Z, and they says, no, that's not who we're going to be. We're going to step out of this. We're going to walk through this. We're going to we're going to obey God. We're going to walk you know, in goodness. I, I believe that God takes that and he has grace in that situation because we're meant to be partners with each other walking this road together. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Sapphira... My same and our husband. <laughs> Ananias. 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 Yeah. He he lies first, mm-hmm. gets struck dead. She comes later and also lies, gets struck dead. But it wasn't like they did that as a they made the decision as a team to lie mm-hmm. to God about mm-hmm. how much they were giving. And I I mean, as unfortunate as it feels in the human world that mm-hmm. they were struck dead, it's it is cool to see it as that they, they had made that decision equally and as a team and God punished them the same. Or held them accountable, I was probably would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, held accountable. Which okay, so And the and the main reason I say that is not to like just I think sometimes when we use punishment it's a negative connotative word and I, right. I think the situation is God is just removing them because they're not gonna be about his business and he's not gonna compromise his temple. Yeah. I think Part of that being like just the righteousness of God too. Mm-hmm. I heard this story correlate with forgive me for not knowing his name because no one ever accused me of being great at names. Nick did. He was like, <laughs> Jamie's great with names. No way. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dude walking with the covenant of the Lord and he it slips and he reaches out to try and catch mm-hmm. it so it doesn't hit the ground. And he's struck dead. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I mean, he was trying to be good in his actions you know he's right. trying to protect the covenant of the lord and and it's just the righteousness of god yeah yeah when the fallenness of man encounters the righteousness of god there there can be problems for us and once again in that situation god doesn't say that, it doesn't say that power went out because god was angry that he touched it mm-hmm. he said hey don't touch this or you're gonna die yeah, yeah. and like pretty clear like don't do this and i like, got it like same thing with nadab and abihu he said hey don't come into the temple if you're not moses or aaron because it's going to kill you. The native and who they want to go and try to take something for themselves. Now, once again, you have somebody touched with the spirit of God, Ananias and Sapphira, and they're like, we're going to go and misrepresent ourselves to try to maybe gain acumen, you know? I mean, have you, have you I, I don't want to like throw anybody under the bus, but like I've been in the church a long time. I do have people who, when they're like, 
I'm going to give a thousand, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? To like to really build up them. And I was like, listen, I appreciate your generosity, but it really feels like this was about you. Right. Not about actually God doing things. The other thing that comes to mind with this whole thing is there's also just natural consequences. Mm-hmm. So, like, I remember this was a few weeks ago. You were over at our house. We have a wood stove. We had a fire mm-hmm. going. And you walked in, and first thing you did is you pointed out to your kids, you're like, fire, hot, touch, ouch. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And so, right? And then, but then, of course, like, your three-year-old's like, whenever you say don't touch that, he's like, I must. I must embrace. <laughs> I must <laughs> embrace. So then we spend a little bit of time being like, no, and then blocking the fireplace off. Yeah. Stuff. But, right? But there's, there is this natural consequence where it's like, mm-hmm. hey. If you touch this, this is going to happen. And and so sometimes we overlook that in Scripture, too, where we're like, oh, well, they did this, so God's punishing them for that. It's like, actually, no. Like, sometimes you're just succumbing to natural consequence. Well, and we have such a finite view on reality, too. Like, yeah. we, we assume the death. Like, I, I think even for Christians, a lot of us, we assume life is it. And we're like, no, life is the beginning of eternity. Eternal life starts the day we say yes to Jesus. Yeah. We have to die once, sure. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about eternity. And yet we seem incredibly focused on the next 80 years. Yeah. That's being ambitious on my part, but <laughs> science is coming a long way. Have so seen, maybe eight years. Have you seen Francis Chan's video on that with the rope? Oh, it's really good. So he takes this, he, it's a sermon that he does, but he takes this rope and he has this rope strung all the way off stage. Mm-hmm. And then he has a little bit of electrical tape on the end. And he's like, this is your life. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the rope's eternity. We're going to go from here and go focus all the way over here. And then we're going to, like, this last little bit, we're going to retire and live there, and then you still have all of eternity. Yeah. He's like, this is such a small view of what life's supposed to be about. Right. Shifting our focus. Yeah. Continuing on in Acts, it says here, at, in verse 14, after this, it says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord were added to the number. Now, it's direct correlation to the preaching and the signs of the apostles. Yeah. That God is bringing both sides of the image to belief in Christ. These same people, both men and women, are the ones who will go out and live out the gospel and actually grow the church. Mm-hmm. The apostles are the ones telling the story, but the people, they're actually equipping them once now, kingdom of priests, yeah. they're equipping them to go and be the priesthood in the world, mm-hmm. both men and women. Yeah. And this is in chapter two, where then it goes on to talk, where he goes on to quote Joel, I believe, mm-hmm. where he's like, men and women will prophesy. All, the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Yep. So then there's this guy by the name of Saul, who eventually we're going to know as Paul. But early on, he's Saul of Tarsus. That's what he's known as his uh, Hebrew name, because Paul is, once again, Greek. Like, just incidentally, if you guys are wondering why Saul, Paul, is he known as a Greek or is he known as a Hebrew? Later on in his ministry, it's more Greek. Luke notes that Saul hauls both men and women off to prison for their proclamation of Jesus. Okay. If they're being hauled off to jail for their proclamation of Jesus, that means they are preaching... Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, men and women. Oh, the Bible doesn't talk about women preachers? Yes, it does. It's right here. Mm -hmm. And it says that he went from house to house, and he would find the people who were claiming to follow Jesus, both male and females, because they were both about spreading the good news. Okay? Then Paul notes in Acts 22 that he persecuted the followers of the way, both male and female. This shows up repeatedly in the book of Acts. Philip baptizes Samaritans, both men and women, in Acts 8. It's probably connected to the woman at the well who Jesus had seen, right? That that whole region was already being prepped 
for this resurrection. Because she had already known the Messiah was coming. So now Philip comes through and he's like, hey, you know that guy who was here before that that lady was telling you about? He's now resurrected and sin has no power over you if you trust in him. And so he's going through all Samaria, which is a place that people don't like. <laughs> and he's, and he's uh, now baptizing people left and right. Lucas continue to note again and again, men and women. It's not an accident. This isn't an accident in the text. Luke is saying it over and over again. It's almost like he has a point <laughs> that he's reminding them that even in the midst of a patriarchal society, God's doing something different. This is a random thought experiment, and I'm 20 seconds on it, and we can move on. Mm-hmm. Paul was arresting both men and women. Mm-hmm. Correct. The Jewish leaders didn't do that when the lady was caught in act of prostitution. Mm-mm. Okay. At least Saul was consistent with the law. Yes. So mm-hmm. Saul was consistent with the law. At the same time, so with that said, Saul would recognize the quote-unquote danger of a woman preacher. Uh-huh. So why was First Timothy 2 hold weight? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. In, in that context. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, thought experience. Oh, we're, we're going we're gonna to have a lot when we get there. It's, yeah, no, it's a good thought. Well. We're not there yet, okay, but it's, it's good. I just haven't connected those dots yet, so that's all. Are you, are you familiar with the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip runs into in the desert? Like, yeah, vaguely. I mean, it's been a while since then. Philip is caught up by the spirit and put into the desert somehow. Like, I don't know exactly. Personally, I really wish that the spirit could, like, catch me up in my car and, like, just take me from my house to work without having to actually do the trip. doesn't work that way. Or maybe it does. Like, I mean, there's mornings where I start at my house and <laughs> I get to town and I'm like... I don't remember much of that. Drive. I feel that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that was probably Holy Spirit. No. That, was, that was that was probably you missing your coffee in the morning. Philip is in the middle of the desert and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch on a chariot or on a chariot going by. He sees him reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading about the suffering servant, about who this is. And Philip comes up and he's like, "Hey, do you understand what you're reading?" And he's like, "Yeah, I can't understand it if somebody doesn't explain it to me." So then he starts to talk to him about Jesus, and he says, "He's like, well, if I want to follow, I should just be baptized." And he's like, "He's like, well, there's water right there. Mm-hmm. Let's go." Then Philip baptizes him, and, and when he comes out of the water, it says Philip disappears, which weird weird thing with you, the Ethiopian, right? Yeah. Do you know who the Ethiopian was? He was, wasn't he a money manager? Like bank? He was a money manager for who? The queen of Ethiopia. Yes. Yeah, I said queen. It's in the Bible, guys. So God makes a special meetup with Philip and the guy who takes care of the money for the queen of Ethiopia. Like maybe he wanted some influence there. Maybe he wanted some influence there. And there's, and there's like conversation about in Ethiopia because they have like these, they track back about what, who this guy was and he may become like a bishop and, 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 you know, but there was a huge busting out of, it seems church by the time people got there. Yeah. They track it back to this guy. He goes back and then he tells the queen, the queen becomes a believer. Now she would bankroll movement of the church. Mm-hmm. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. Right yeah. now, by the way, that last part is speculation because I can't prove that. I don't have documentation, but it's really interesting that this is the guy that God chooses to put Philip in touch with. Yeah. Philip, by the way, who has four daughters that prophesy, mm-hmm. does he have any issue with women speaking the gospel? No. No. Four daughter prophets. Mm-hmm. Boy, that is, you think raising one daughter is hard. Raise four daughters that just, are proclaiming just... the word of the Lord <laughs> over you. My mind just went to the like, man, what were family dinners like? I have four daughters who are prophets. Hey, could you pass the salt? Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> it's like you have the Philip's <laughs> disciple, four daughters who are prophets, and then Philip's wife, who's probably like, oh, dear Lord, I'm here. All right. So then I want to talk about one of my favorite characters in, in Acts. It's a person by the name of Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, which is so great. 
like Dorcas is such a great name. It has to do with Greek and Hebrew and, and a bunch of things. It says in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, the Greek name. Her name was Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. Okay. She was always doing good and welcoming the poor. She is the only named disciple with a feminine noun in the New Testament. So when people say that disciple doesn't show up in a feminine noun, it actually does in the book of Acts. She is a named disciple of the way with a feminine noun. Now, most of the time when it's going to be written, it's going to be a masculine noun because there just wasn't feminine nouns in, in the language at that time yeah. re- regarding this, this particular role. That's a language thing. That's not necessarily a life lived thing. It's an intentional addition by Luke to point out that women are in fact actually following his yes. disciples. I don't, I feel like that's not an accident that he adds that specifically, that specific Greek word. And she was always doing good and helping others. So there's a lot of believers or at least people who knew the story around Tabitha. Like she has been telling the story for a really long time so that when Peter shows up because Dorcas ends up dying, like Tabitha ends up dying and like Peter's nearby and they're like, Hey, can you come see her? And he shows up and he prays over her and God brings her back from the dead. All these people are already familiar with the story. And now the de- demonstrative power of the Holy Spirit moving through him. Now they not only know the story, they believe the story. Mm-hmm. And so now, and so like all those people in that area start to believe. Now, was it Peter that caused them to believe? Or was it the fact that Tabitha was constantly doing good and preaching the word wherever she went? And so then when power came in her life, People believed. Mm-hmm. She laid the foundation. She laid a foundation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like now, Peter, I, I think Peter would honestly be the same guy. He's like, he's like, man, you're making my job easy. I'm just showing up here. Ask God to move. And like, you've already laid all the groundwork. You've been obeying. You've been walking in obedience. It's kind of like when our churches, when our pastors are faithful, like a week to week to week to preach the word, follow the gospel, teach people to follow after Jesus. And then a special speaker comes in and like, God just has like his hand on them mm-hmm. or them. Suddenly people start responding in droves. They didn't respond in droves simply because of that person is because of the faithfulness of the ministers that have been working with them the whole time. Yeah. Like Paul himself will say, I laid a seed, Peter watered, Apollo's harvested. Mm-hmm. It's not about just the harvest. It's actually about doing the work of planting and watering. Well, and, and to Tabitha's, to Tabitha's credit, she was doing the work. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times what we do is we focus so much on the result. And it's like, it's like, actually, we're not supposed to focus on the result. We're supposed, we're called to do the work. Can you imagine if our church, our church, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not, no, not a negative thing about our church. Can you imagine if our church was known for doing good? Mm-hmm. Like people are like, I, I see, I, there's something that needs to be done in town. Somebody needs to be helped. You know, assembly is always helping people. Mm-hmm. Like this is what they do. Like this is who they are. Like being known for those type of things, I mean, that just opens the door left and right to actually have relationships speak into people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the conversation piece you talk about with Young Life all the time? That like you earn the right to have a conversation? Right to be heard. To be heard, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's the model they have is that you're earning the right to be heard. Yeah. And so with that said, like you're not just going in and being like, Hey, I just met you. Now let me Bible thump you with Jesus. What you're doing is you're going in and you are building a relationship and you're earning the right to be heard to where they are like, hey, there's something different about you. We want to know the story. And you're like, well, let me tell you. Right. The reality with that style of that style of ministry and that style of work is it takes a lot longer. Yeah. Right, to do to to build that trust, especially nowadays, like especially post COVID, it takes a lot longer to build that trust. Mm-hmm. As you're doing that, it's. You're laying the groundwork. You're doing the work. You're being faithful, right? 
And I have a pastor friend of mine, like as he would say, as he says, he's like, yeah, I'm responsible for being faithful. I'm not responsible for the outcome. That's that's Jesus's responsibility. Right. And if I see one success, quote unquote, through this all, he's like every toil, effort, struggle we have gone through as pastors of this church is worth it. It's really hard to even say success, though, because how many times do you run into somebody like five years later? And they're like, yeah, yeah I remember this thing you said. Yeah. Or this thing you did uh-huh. or how you prayed yeah. or the way you loved your kids. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And it inspired like, you know, this. And I was like, we don't know. We're responsible for being faithful. Mm-hmm. God's responsible for the increase in the harvest. Yeah. Like, obviously, we have to go and work the harvest because we're, we're partners with God. But yeah. I was like, he's responsible for actually creating the harvest. Yeah. He's the one who's going to draw people to repentance. And I, I think at times you grew up in the church. So I'm going to say a phrase. People say you just need to preach the gospel. You heard that? Yeah. What do you think people mean by that? I think it's probably different for everyone, for every denomination. Because, like, in the, in, I will say, like, a lot of times in Southern Baptist growing up, like Southern Baptist history, if somebody says you just need to preach the gospel, what they, what they're saying is you need to talk to every single person you meet about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, like, every single time. You're going to preach, preach, preach the gospel. And I was like, okay, but the problem is that's actually not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the fulfillment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is repent now for the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent now for the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is here and ready for you to interact with it, which is accessible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, like, it would seem to me that if I'm going to bring the gospel, what I should be doing is bringing a kind of world into this world by the way that I live. And the way that I act and speak, the way that I interact with the people around me, just simply like, and please don't mishear me. What I'm not saying is you shouldn't talk about Jesus. I'm saying that talking about Jesus should be so integrated in your life that it's a natural part. So the the phrase just preach the gospel actually rubs me the wrong way personally. Oh, me too. I can hear the keyboards typing in. Oh, they're typing so hard. It makes me think of Bible thumpers and I didn't want to see that. No, it's okay. No, it's it's okay. We're, we're known for being a little controversial here. We're known for being all, we never mention people, but we, we do talk about like theologies. Yeah. But the, the idea of just preach the gospel, what, what I don't like about it is it leaves out living your life according to Christ. And so what we should be doing is we should be living our lives according to how Christ has called us to live and in a way to where we are bringing the gospel everywhere we go, whether we are verbally speaking it or just showing it through mm-hmm. how we live. I've heard I've heard people bash on Saint Francis of Assisi, mm-hmm. where he says, "Preach the gospel and use words if necessary." Mm-hmm. And there's actually a lot more to that quote. I'm not going correct. Yeah, it's a much longer quote. It's a much longer quote. But the idea there is that you are bringing Jesus everywhere you go. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are bringing Christ into the grocery store, into mm-hmm. the schools, into your church buildings, etc., into art shows, wherever you are bringing Christ into that atmosphere and that. And over time, that physically changes the atmosphere of that place. Yeah. In Isaiah, it says, A king will reign in righteousness. Princes will rule in justice. Each man will be like a stream of water in a desert land. Because the desert's real hot. <laughs> and he, he's going to be shelter from a great storm. Yeah. And this is after it lists all these things where you're going to be relief, right? Yeah. Then the eyes of those that can see will see. And the ears of those that can hear will hear. And the tongues of those that can speak will be loosed. What is this idea is that for people to see, hear, and speak and be able to receive what you're, you have to first be water in a thirsty land. Yeah. 
shelter in a great storm. Like you need to be these things before you start speaking these things. Yeah. Which kind of goes into this whole idea of like, where, where do you fall from love God and love other people? If we're sitting around and we're complaining and we're arguing about whether or not women can be pastors, are we actually spending time learning how to love people the way that Jesus loves us? No, probably not. I feel like we could focus. And if we're going to fight, let's fight about more important things. One of the questions I always ask myself when I'm going about my day, when I'm bringing Christ in the community, is how does Christ want to use me to make this person's day better? Mm-hmm. It's a question that runs through the back of my mind when I'm talking to, when I decide not to use a self-checkout and actually go talk to someone who's ringing my groceries up. Because, let's be real, I like self-checkouts. And times where I'm like, I just don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just one off. I feel you. Yeah. But how how does Christ want to make their day better? So our art community, in particular our arts council uh-huh. is very liberal uh-huh. and there's you know a lot of content that flows through there that is not always something you know that i agree with uh-huh. and i serve on a committee for the arts council in a very liberal atmosphere mm. which is incredibly difficult sometimes and at moments i'm like this is my volunteer time and it's like how better could i be using my volunteer time in another arena and then i have to remember like the reason I said yes to being on that committee is because it, God needs to be in there. And well, you are the light of the world. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. And I only, I know that only through like relationship mm-hmm. and being an example and being the light in that space, uh, can God make a difference. It's so good. That's, that's so good. So some of the other women, we're going to kind of start high stepping through here because I want to, I really want to make sure that we set a, set a level of like expectation of what's going on in the New Testament. There's mentioned is Mary, the mother of John Mark, who is travels with Paul and a lady by the name of Rhoda. So Peter's arrested and they're gathering at her house to pray. So this is apparently a regular place they gather. It'd be a place where believers intercede and listen to the voice of God. And when Peter knocks on the door, it's a name, woman named Rhoda who goes back and tells everybody, Hey, Peter, Peter's at the door. Like, he's hanging out over here. We should probably let him in, you know? And a host has authority. Mm-hmm. Like, like, keep that in mind contextually. If you are at someone's house, that host actually has authority. Yeah. Rhoda, though, she she hears Peter's voice, and she doesn't even open the door yeah. to let him in. And I love that because she's just, she has the faith yeah. and, and the relationship to be able to recognize his voice. So, obviously, they're mm-hmm. close. And then the faith to know, like, Oh, that's Peter, and that's what we've been praying for. And so she goes back to let everybody know, but they're like, "Nah." Well, and they also they also <laughs> have to wonder because, like, I mean, like, you know, it's very like Judaism would be much more mystical than like Christianity today, which I think is a shame because God does mystical things. Mm-hmm. Mystical in the aspect of the spirit does things that we don't understand. Not mystical in the aspect of let's meditate and be crazy. But they're like, well, maybe this is a spirit of Peter. Maybe he was executed and he's here, which I mean, is a valid concern because people were, were getting killed. In Acts 13, Paul is actually going through his missionary journey and the Jewish leaders don't like what he has to say. Now, we talked about this a few summers ago at our church when we talked about when they would go through the region of Galatia and then he, they would invite him in. He talked to them about Jesus and they're like, oh, yeah, we like this. Come back next week. And then the entire town would show up, all the Gentiles. And they're like, we don't like this. We don't like it. It's too many people. Yeah. These, these people are not, should not be allowed in, which is the scandalous nature of the gospel is that those that are on the outside are welcomed in. It's not a relatable story at all. Yeah. By the way, the people <laughs> on the, if you're a Gentile, you should recognize that women are being allowed in to all the aspects of what men are being allowed into. Yeah. Because we were allowed into a place that was exclusive for Jews. Amen. 
here I'll read this to you in verse 50 in Acts 13. It says, the Jewish leaders incited God-fearing, so this is the Theosebes, these are the God-fearing Gentiles that go to Jewish synagogue, God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So once again, we I've talked about Theosebes. It's the God-fearing Gentiles. Yeah. These are people who wanted to practice Judaism but didn't go, undergo conversion. Mm-hmm. So they're there on a regular basis. The Jewish leaders got the Gentile women of high standing to stir up the crowd. So apparently even the Jewish leaders are like, well, these are the people who are really going to make like movers and shakers. Oh, and some high profile men. This is not particularly like a good story talking about women because like they're forcing Paul and Barnabas out. But it is talking about how women actually do have authority in in these contexts. Timothy's mother is a lady by the name of Eunice. She was a Jew and a believer, but she was married to a Greek. I think the implication is that he was not a believer in the text, uh, but she stayed with the man who is likely following Paul's instructions in his letters is that if they're willing to stay with you, stay with them because you might be able to bring them. Then Paul notes in Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, 5, he says, he talks about the sincere faith that he sees in Timothy, first that lived in his grandmother, Lois, and then in his mother, Eunice. And he is then persuaded that that same faith lives in Timothy. Timothy, who he's going to give authority over the Ephesus church. So this guy he's going to put in charge, he says, the faith that I saw in your grandmother... And the faith that I saw in your mother is the same faith I see in you. And that's what gives me the comforting reasoning to put you in authority. Because I know that there were strong women in your life who spoke into you. Yeah. Quite a statement about those women. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. This is one you like to talk about is Lydia. Lydia. So Lydia, purple cloth. When Paul went to Philippi, start this church, where did he go? He went to the banks of the river where these women were working. Now, mm-hmm. Lydia had means because purple cloth insinuates wealth. And so he starts this church in Philippi. And one of the things I always find interesting about this <coughs> is the letter of Philippians. Like when they're like, when, pe- when people study it and they're like, oh, well, we're reading Philippians. I was like, who do you think it was written to? Yeah. Like it wasn't, it was written to church leadership in Philippi, which were most likely women. Yeah, did you actually notice in the text that, okay, so you know how it always says that he and his whole household believed? Yeah. When Lydia believes, it says Lydia and her whole household believed. Yep. That's, that is not a like something to just glance over in the text. That was dropping some heavy hammers and well, mics. And the other thing to not glance over is if you read Philippians, Philippians is one of the most encouraging books because of the good work that the church in Philippi is doing. Yeah. There actually is no direct correction unlike Galatians, unlike Ephesians, unlike Corinthians, unlike Romans. So all these other churches, Paul actually provides some level of direct correction. But the church that's led by women, mm-hmm. he's like, you're killing it. Not only that, like his his thing is like, these are the things you're doing really well. Here's how you go even further. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's a great conversation to have, by the way, when you're like, listen, you are doing a great job. Let me tell you how you can be even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not a negative. Well, the so the funny part about it is the the first pastor I ever heard talk about how there's no direct correction and and the letter of Philippians was actually a Southern Baptist pastor, and I already like had connected dots about like well he's writing to a group of women pastors, mm-hmm. he's not mentioning that, yeah, but <laughs> we're just he's just gonna skirt around that. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall at that time in how the women worked together mm-hmm. because. It's unfortunate that now, in our culture, 
to see women work together in the church, it, it, it's not always a pretty thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know where we went wrong <laughs> or why, why it has this uh, feeling of almost uh, competition. Now, my own personal experience, like my co- like pastor wives, leadership wives. I am thrilled at this point mm-hmm. in life to have like such an f- awesome team. Like mm-hmm. okay. I feel very, very blessed. And maybe, I mean, maybe that's where we're doing it right, <laughs> you know, but I've just seen so much conflict in the church between, between women in particular. And, but do you, do you think though, maybe some of that comes from the fact that like, if you are disqualified by bad theology, that you maybe just scrim for any piece of authority you can get, like trying to step into any piece of like, you, you know what I mean? If you're not allowed to do something, like you're purposely allowed for something that may legitimately be a calling in your life, that that like there's like some angst, there's some frustration, there's and that just bleeds over into the way and like because here at our church, it's a lot of collaborative. Like we're gonna work together. Nobody has a super big ego about anything. Mm-hmm. We're just gonna work through this and deal with it together. Yeah, we'll pick up the pieces when people are gone, and you know, it's great. Like right. to your point, like you and the and and the other uh, counterparts get along really well. Yeah, like you support each other. I, I think another part of that too. I think a lot of times we don't we feel we see a need that we need filled, and then we're like, "Where's a warm body to fill it?" And we're not actually putting someone in a place where they would be gifted to serve or take joy in serving. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think that gets overlooked because and I, I hate the stereotype on this one, but like a lot of times where women get put in ministry is things like greeting, nursery, kids ministry. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of women who who've begrudgingly agreed to serve in kids ministry and hated it. Mm-hmm. Right. Not because, not because they hated kids, but it's just not what they were gifted at. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the hard thing about that too, is that when you try to force gender stereotypes in there mm-hmm. there might be a man who's incredibly gifted at working with kids mm-hmm. right and a woman who's incredibly gifted at teaching adults yeah and like they're not operating in the way that god made them to be uh-huh. we're trying to force them to be different mm-hmm. than what god wants them to be yeah you know yeah now with all that being said like sometimes we fill into ministries just because there's a need absolutely but we're talking about long-term like faithful like walking right yeah yeah, and so so sometimes we jump in when there's a need. I think that's more of a call for church leadership, though. Yeah. Of being like, if somebody wants to get involved and serve, let's have a conversation about where where are your giftings at. Yeah. Like like what what brings you like what what's something that brings you joy? Yeah. Later on in the text of Acts, it does talk about it's, again it's these chief and honorable women of the Greeks because they're once again trying to get Paul to leave the city. It's a different city, and they're like, well, let's get these you know, these really high powered women actually happens a lot of times that the Jewish leaders are like, let's get these, these really strong women to get them out of here, which is a surprising, especially when you know things about like Ephesus and like those areas too. In 1734 of the book of Acts, it says this, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was uh, Dionysius. Hmm. I'm really good at those words. A member of a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius and a number of others. Okay. Some of those people became followers of Paul. What does that mean? Disciple. Disciple. And believed. Among them was this one dude, and then there's a woman named Demarius who is now a disciple of Paul. Okay? What is the idea of a disciple? A disciple is somebody who 
knows what the rabbi knows to do what the rabbi does in order to be just like the rabbi in the walk with God. So that's why we apprentice under Rabbi Jesus. Yeah. And Paul says, imitate me like I imitate Christ. So the idea is if you're a follower of Paul, you're ultimately trying to imitate Christ. Yeah. Once, once again, talking about disciples like Jesus, we see here that Paul takes on disciples that are women as well. Yeah. All right. And then there's this lady by the name of Priscilla. There is a lot about Priscilla. So I'm going to kind of mention her just a few times. In 18.2, it says there is a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So he's a tent maker. So he stayed with them. And then he tells them about Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. It says in 1818, it says Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed to for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Well, what just happened there? Disciples. I know, but wasn't it Aquila? She was placed first. She was placed first. Mm -hmm which is a very big deal in the way that you put the text. Because if you actually read, even when, when Barnabas and Paul first go out, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, then something happens and it's Paul and Barnabas. Mm -hmm. Like there is a, there is a shift that happens because one actually becomes the instigator. And, one, and that's not to say that they're not together, mm -hmm. but it means that one is a look to the one who is in, in leadership. So now it says Priscilla and Aquila. Good pickup, Jamie. High five. It's not. I'm not going to reach all the way over there because I'm going to like stretch. <laughs> Don't tell people that. You can cut it out. Make me look smart. I'm going to just, I'm going to leave just that in so people know that you're a smart aleck. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, I also noted here, it says uh, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at this place. I'm not going to read it because of a vow that he had taken. So if we remember, what vow do you actually not cut your hair? Nazarite. Nazarite vow. So Paul had been taking the Nazarite vow to become closer to God. So he had not been touching dead things or drinking fermented drink and he had not cut his hair. Then when he had fulfilled his vow, he cut his hair. That's how you they run through the fulfillment of the vow. This is also one of the things I want to point out to people where we talk about, well, Paul just lived a completely non-Jewish life once he became a Christian. No, he was still following Jewish law mm -hmm. all throughout his ministry. This is once again, like he, he's fulfilling a Nazarite vow at this point. Yeah. That's a very Jewish thing to do. You don't do it if you're not like that is a su substantial vow to take. Yeah. Continue on with Priscilla in 1824. It says, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos gifted speaker, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home, and they explained him the way of God more adequately. Mm -hmm. they, they're like, we see what you're doing, and you're doing a great job, but let's help fill in the gaps for you. Once again, Priscilla and Aquila now educating, teaching, having authority mm -hmm. in instructing a very well-known pastor of, the, of that time. And side note, note how they corrected. Yeah. And how they instructed. It wasn't it wasn't the you heretic model. Yeah. It was like the hey, we gotta fill in some gas, but what we're gonna do, come over for dinner. Let's enjoy yeah. the meal, let's have a conversation. Right. And the whole thing is they. Yeah. They. They. Yeah. I love that it's together. they. They're doing it together. Yeah. Priscilla and Nicola, even though she is the more prominent, mm -hmm. they do things together. Yes. Like they they are an awesome, they're a power couple. Yeah. They're they're the Pastor Nick and Jamie of mm -hmm. Except I think. <laughs> no, go ahead. I think Priscilla is the outgoing, <coughs> well-spoken one. Mm -hmm. That's not happening in Nick's in my relationship. 
He's like, hey, let's go talk to people. And you're like, do we have to? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's times I've gone over to Nick and Jamie's house and Nick's like, hey, yeah, come on in. And Jamie's like, why are you here? Mm. Peace. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no, it's really fine, Spencer. Yeah. We we enjoy you. I, side, that side. sounded convincing the way she said it. She's like, it's so, it's really fine. Side note, like, I, there was a time where my brother-in-law, brother-in-law and sister-in-law were in town. They were staying in that Airbnb, like, right next to your guys' place. I was trying to convince my brother-in-law just to go, like, sit on your guys' couch and be like, yeah, this is our Airbnb, right? And and I told Nick that. He's like, he's like, I would have thought that was funny. He's like, Jamie? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. But luckily, my sister-in-law was like, my brother-in-law was going to do it. And she was like, no, you can't walk into their house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so good. That's, that's the woman bringing, yeah. you know, structure yeah. and discipline yeah. too. So, it, beyond the Book of Acts, Paul actually mentions Priscilla a couple other times. So, in Romans sixteen three, he says, "Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my coworkers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house." So coworkers, meaning mean people that are doing the same work. So Paul is under the impression that he, Priscilla, and Aquila are his coworkers, and they're also supposed to greet the church meets through their house. Interesting. I'm wondering if maybe somebody might be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Hmm. They're also mentioned in First Corinthians in uh, the same way, yeah. and they're known throughout the regions. And in Second Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to greet Priscilla and Aquila. They are clearly significant parts of the ministry of Paul. Mm-hmm. Like he talks about them all the time. They're and close, they're close friends. Yeah, probably because they they were all tent makers. Then there's a lady by the name of Phoebe who's mentioned in Romans. It says here, it says, I commend to you, my sister Phoebe, a deacon. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The church in uh, Sencrea. Yeah, that's a word. So I'm not Greek. So there is debate over the word deacon there on Phoebe. Mm-hmm. But, but the implication, though, is that she has authority because Paul in that later in Romans 16.1 actually says do what she says yeah like well yeah it continues it says i ask you to receive her in the lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been a benefactor of many people including me so the word sister by the way is the greek word for sister and it's used throughout the bible Uh, it literally means sister right because there's conversation about was phoebe a man or a woman because they try to do some things with like her name right so his sister over and over again, if you look up the word deacon, it's actually the same word that Paul uses in his letter to Timothy when he's talking about qualifications of deacons for the church mm-hmm. is the exact same word. So the word deacon literally means servant. But to be fair, this is the same word that Paul uses to describe himself mm-hmm. and Apollos and Peter. This is an upside down kingdom of God because those in authority are really those that serve. The apostles are supposed to be servants of the people mm-hmm. to empower others to be Christ in their community. Yep. I, I, it's just one of those things where they're like, where they're like, well, you know, servant means blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, servant would actually be the person of highest authority because if you understand the kingdom of God, the person who serves is the one who is actually the greatest. They're modeling after Jesus who bent down, served, and washed feet. Nasty feet. Nasty feet. Yeah. Even the feet of Judas. Mm-hmm. So mentioned just after Phoebe is a lady by the name of uh, Junia. It says to greet Andro, Andronicus. Rather, that's so. These guys got great names. If you are if you are about to have a boy, and you have a baby, and you want to get a name Androcus, Androcus. That's the name right there. 
Yeah. And Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. Mm -hmm. And they were in Christ before I was. Junia is a proper feminine noun that means youthful. So once again, there's this conversation about is Junia actually a man or a woman? It is a proper feminine noun in the Greek. Mm-hmm. Paul considers both her and Androchinus apostles, which means, which we've talked about in the past, that apostles are people who are sent from one place to another place to make the place they go to look like the place they come from. Mm-hmm. If we are apostles for the kingdom of God, we make every place we go look like the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. We bring kingdom wherever we go. It's the same word, same Greek word that is used for the 12 apostles and for Paul. Yeah. So Paul notes that they were in Christ before him, meaning that they have been a disciples or apostles for a long time at the writing of this letter. Mm-hmm. Because when he writes Romans, it's been multiple years that he's been a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard people when we've, when Romans 16 has been brought up where they're like, oh, you really have to dig on that type of stuff. I was like, you don't. You don't. You don't. It's, it's clear two female names mm-hmm. listed with authority. Yeah. Like, you don't have to, like, this isn't, if you're wondering, like, oh, well, where are you getting all this information? I was like, this is actually just very clear in the text in English. Mm-hmm. His name was changed, though, at a point in time during certain certain texts had changed. Yeah, there, it, there, um, are, yeah. there are certain translations that like have tried. Junius or something, trying to change it to a, a male. Yeah, they try to change it to, like, a justice almost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and But when you go back to the original uh, manuscripts. Yeah. I mean, what's one of the nice things about like Dead Sea Scrolls showing up is that you have like older manuscripts that are able to actually coordinate with each other, mm-hmm. and it's it's definitely Junia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you can try to change it all you want, but it's definitely Junia. Yeah. But crazy to think like you know just how hard society changed tried to change things yeah. Yeah. in the Bible to to eliminate God using women and. Well, it's not even a new thing because in the 1600s, there was a uh, German woman preacher in the Reformation who was speaking about God's authority for women to preach. Hmm. And she ran a, uh, a church with her with her pastor husband, and he died, and she continued to run it for another 20 years after he died. Hmm. Yeah. She was actually speaking opposite of Calvin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about her in a couple of weeks. It is crazy to me that you somebody would actually go as far as to even try to edit the Bible because of their particular theological stance. There are people who do that, and we call them cults. I'm going to say that again. There are people who do that, and we call them cults. Really be careful about trying to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. If if you want a good example of who you should be following as far as like pastor or leader goes, look for the look for the pastor or leader who has a repentive heart about what they've done wrong. Mm. And so continually good. has a repentive heart about what they've done wrong. So good. And we've talked about David before mm-hmm. on the podcast, but David, king of Israel, not necessarily a great role model you want to follow after in many aspects. Like, pretty bad dad, had an affair with a woman, got her pregnant, and I was like, okay, well, let's try to get her to sleep with her husband so that this looks legit. Oh, that's not going to work. Okay, let's have her husband killed off through some political scheming. Blah, blah, blah. This goes on, right? So what made David a man after his own heart, after God's own heart? He repented mm-hmm. every time. He's willing to own up with his mistakes. Yeah. 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 And so if you're looking for a good role model as far as pastor, <coughs> look for the one who has a repentant heart. Yeah. Because they will make mistakes. 
All right, I'm going to rapid fire off some names here because I'm not going to get super deep in these. Rem- remainder of Romans 16, Paul greets a ton of women. Yes. He says, greet Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Great names, by the way, if you're having twin daughters, go for it. <laughs> Those women who work, they work hard in the <laughs> Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Ancinicritius, Phlegon, man, that looks like phlegm. Hermes, Petrobus, Hermanus, and the brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philojolius, Julia, Nerisis, and his sister. Somebody who knows Greek, they're going to hear me say this, and they're like, those are not the correct pronunciations. I apologize. Come on the podcast. I'll let you pronounce them correctly. And Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with him. And then there's a conversation about Chloe, who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians because it's Chloe's household that writes to Paul and says, hey, we got some issues going on here. Can you write us a letter and explain some of these things? So Chloe's well thought of enough that her household writes to Paul and he's like, oh, got to answer that. Mm-hmm. And then there's a couple other women listed briefly. There's Eurodia, there's Sintish, Claudia, Aphia, and Nympha. No, so here's the thing. We didn't actually mention all the women talked about in the New Testament. Nope. I, I, I briefly skipped a stone across. I tried to pick out the most prominent names for you. Nor in church history. We're going to talk about some of that next week. Yeah. What we should see in this text is that God is absolutely using women not only to forward the church, but to lead the church. Yes. How's the church do the good work in communities and many other things. So the qualifications for ministry leadership is the call of God on your life, not your gender, Mm -hmm. not your experience and not your knowledge. Mm -hmm. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. I can't remember who said that originally, but I love the quote. Mm -hmm. Our job for both men and women is to listen to the call of God on our life, but also ask God what he's doing in the lives of those close to us Mm -hmm. to recognize the call in their lives as well. Then to live into the call of God puts on our life and to help others live into the call that God has put on their life. Mm -hmm. And this is especially true when it comes to women. Yeah. So Jamie, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here because I think you're going to be more qualified to talk about this than most what has been your experience growing up? Maybe not in the Pentecostal church, because I know that they're a lot more open to or like ordaining women and stuff like that. But what has been your experience growing up in the church with p- people's perspective on women in ministry or teaching? And like, have you had a lot of issues that you've run into with that? Well, like you'd mentioned earlier, I do think that there are those gender stereotype positions that women are, I'll say, encouraged to take place in like children's ministry, nursery. I was part of a young adults uh, internship for a while. There were times when it certainly felt like there was more emphasis put on teaching the young men than there were the young women. I saw some of the young women got put in place of taking care of like the pastor's kids. Mm. You know, to be fair, like, I think all the interns kind of took a little bit of share in that. But, but you know, one girl in particular. And so, you know, I think ju- I, some of that just comes culturally. Like, that's just the mindset that and the habit that we get stuck in. But I fully appreciate you recognizing that sometimes there's a calling on the lives of women that mm-hmm. are not always accepted or recognized or encouraged to happen because they're more, more often position that a man's put into. Yeah. I, do you think maybe I was thinking about this, 
There's also maybe a little bit more scrutiny put on a woman who serves in ministry than there is on a man who would step into the exact same position. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think there's way more eyes on on women and, and, you know, kind of always some people waiting for them to trip up. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we've had this conversation that we said, if you speak from the pulpit for any period of time, you're going to speak heresy because not on purpose, but just because you're talking in front of people, you're going to say something strange, which I've never done ever. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that with there's a lot of latitude given to people because of their gender and not necessarily because of their calling. Yeah, that's that's not to say that I don't think we should hold pastors accountable. I think you absolutely should. Yeah. But can we be consistent? In that basis, you know, like, because when I'm holding a pastor accountable, male or female, my, my desire is for them to grow in what God is calling them to be, not for them to feel bad about what they're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know that my mother-in-law is an ordained pastor mm-hmm. and that she's pastoring in the South right now, Yeah, which has not been easy. They've been there for quite a while. I think almost 10 years now. I have thought about having her on the podcast, but I'm pretty sure we wouldn't get to say anything. <laughs> You're probably right. Maybe it would be a good challenge. <laughs> but, you know, she shared a lot of her struggle about how much more difficult it is from mm-hmm. moving from a state that's quite a bit more open to women in ministry, yeah. um, you know, to states where... It's just not as easy. Yeah, you're going to have a lot more of that ingrained in, because Georgia, mm. yeah, you're going to have a lot more of that ingrained in, in Georgia. That's not to, if anybody's listening from Georgia, we love Georgia. Because of the pastors down there. So. Yeah, yeah, and and so that we're speaking of a general trend, not of specific people. Mm-hmm. When you're in the Bible Belt, that's kind of like you have, where, where faith became a tradition rather than an expression of truth. And please understand, yeah. like, if your church is handling some of these issues that we're talking about really well. We love it. Love it. Yep. Awesome. In fact, if you have stories, please send them to us because we'd love to share them. Mm-hmm. Like we w- we'd love to hear about what's going on in your churches and how God is moving, and just love to encourage anybody who is stepping into this. And I think once again, it's probably important we're overemphasizing women in this series because we feel like they've been de-emphasized. Yeah. I what I'm we're never saying is that every woman should be a pastor, mm-hmm. but we believe that we should all look for the call of God in our life and lift people up for that call. And that gender is not an uh, not part of that equation. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts or uh, anything that you want to share? I will in like an hour. In like an hour? Well, yeah. that's great because we won't be recording in an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They'll all flood in about at the same time and I'll have so many fantastic things to say. Well, that's actually good because we're actually going to push record now and do that whole thing again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, my God. Uh, well, thank you for peer pressuring me into being a part of this. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, even though we can't see you. Oh, yeah. Or can we? Oh. <laughs> Just nope. like creepy. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Thanks. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Love and Context. We hope you enjoyed this engaging conversation and gained valuable insights into the powerful message of love within the Bible. We'd love to hear from you and continue the conversation. Connect with us by sending us your questions, thoughts, and suggestions to loveandcontext at gmail.com. We greatly appreciate your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Stay connected with us on social media for updates, behind-the-scenes content, and additional resources. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook at Love and Context. Don't forget to hit that follow button to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join our growing community. 
Thank you for being part of the Love and Context family. Remember, love is at the heart of it all. Until next time, keep seeking wisdom, embracing love, and living out your faith in the context of today's world. Jamie, you're more artistic than I am. What do you think? Did you like it before or? You know, when you couldn't see Spencer's face? Yeah. My my phone died, so my notes are gone. So, oh, good. So, good. So you, I, I will just assume that you don't have that. I, I will follow along, but you are responsible for keeping us back on track. Did you know sometimes Nick takes these supplements that have those, what is it, lion's mane mushroom oh, yeah. in it? And it's supposed to give you like this real buzz and your brain just mm-hmm. goes off. And I thought this morning, like, oh, maybe I should take some of that. Yeah. It would help me focus and actually have words and remember the words that I want to say. And then legitimately interrupt us anytime. And just... It's the only way that I'm going to get a word yeah. in edgewise. Yeah, just interrupt <laughs> us anytime. We're good with that. Wink. That's since the camera can see me. I don't know if they can see me wink from that far away. Probably not. Probably not.